Hello and welcome to Spy Hard's podcast where your hosts go deep undercover into the world of spy movies to decipher which films make the knock list. But remember, this information, it's strictly for your ears only. I'm Mr. Hardy. And I'm Mr. Smith. And keep leaning on that tutor, Charlie, and you'll get a shot in the mouth. <laughs> which is a, a, a good opener for this film. But uh, riding across the arid plains of the Nevada desert can, we are joined by a very special guest. His second appearance on the show, you may have telegraphed it a couple of weeks ago, but he's a reporter for Business in Vancouver and co-host of your other podcast, Subspace Transmissions, Mr. Tyler Orton. Hello, Tyler. Well, hello. I haven't always been described as uh, Mr. Tyler Orton, though. Really? Do, 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 what are other words that people used to describe you? Well, you know, you're, you're James Bond, you're uh, Red Dawn, a touch of Goldie Hawn, not to mention Jason Bond. <laughs> We're really setting the tone for this episode, and this, uh, the craziness probably works, but... Um... Last time we had you on the show, Tyler, we were talking about Three Days of the Condor. And this was, I think, a year or so ago at this point now? Yeah. Uh, 18 months ago, because I recall uh, a provincial election was called uh, the day that we were recording. And um, if I seemed a little distracted, is because I was getting a, a flood of text messages and emails coming in at the same time we were recording, as I had to jump on board and begin covering this provincial election, which was uh, an interesting 45 minutes or so of my life. It, it was really fun for us because like, of all the people we've had on the show so far, and we're talking from the Nicholas Myers of the world, directors, screenwriters, the only person to ever big league us and say, I have to leave, guys, is basically like our best mate, Tyler. <laughs> well, you know what? I, it, it's because I'm, I'm often described as your Austin Powers, your Jack Bowers, or maybe just your spy next Dars. Did you just do your rhyme again, Tyler? Oh, I've got 14 of these ready to go, believe me. <laughs> Perfect. I'm not exaggerating. <laughs> there was never a better film for this. But I, I don't think we really explored it in the Three Days of the Condor episode because that is not this type of film. But you know, people will know from clicking on this episode what we're talking about this week. But I kind of want to know what your James Bond connection is, Tyler. So um, yeah, take us through it a little bit. What's your experience growing up with James Bond? Any particular favorites that jump out to you? Well, so, okay, my introduction was literally James Bond Jr. Like, mm -hmm. I knew kind of the name James Bond as, as a kid. I always associated it with Sean Connery. And it wasn't until I was opening up the uh, the newspaper one day, just I was going through the reviews, and they're talking about this movie called GoldenEye and how, you know, there's a first film that really had to deal with kind of this post-Soviet world. What would the framework be like and all that? And it, it intrigued me, but I, I, I was way too young to go to theaters to see that. But uh, within maybe a year or two, we had the GoldenEye video game. And that's what really got me sucked into that universe. And of course, growing up down in the United States, we had those TBS marathons of James Bond yeah. that just go on all the time. And I, I think after that, that's when I realized is uh, Roger Moore was my Bond uh, going forward. So that's kind of my relationship to uh, James Bond. But I remember as soon as I started playing the GoldenEye video game, I was all aboard for the movies. I'd go see every single one in theaters. And so that's really what gripped me uh, way back in the day. Yeah, and I know you and I have gone to see the last three Craigs, but also um, showings of Goldfinger and Moonraker. Well, Cam, yeah, we went and saw the last three, but I believe you bought tickets um, four times, right? 
Oh, the legendary story of Skyfall. Yes, that's right. So we were doing a group get-together where we were going out to see Skyfall, and I bought, I think it was like eight tickets or something like that in advance, and one of them was actually for a friend who was interested in this, you know, young lady, and it was the way to kind of, you know, get the two of them together for a date, right? So I invited her out. It's a group thing, no pressure. So I have all of us at a restaurant, you know, 10.30 at night, the night of, it's a midnight showing, and... The, uh, the server comes by and says, oh, what are you all doing here? And we said, oh, we're going to see the new James Bond movie. And she said, yeah, a lot of people are doing that last night, too. <laughs> and we were like, no, no, we're going opening night. And she's like, really? Well, there was a lot of people here last night for that. And we're like, uh... And I look at the tickets, and we were there one day late. <laughs> they Normally, the movies were always Thursdays at midnight. But for some reason, it was a Wednesday at midnight. It was very rare. <laughs> Yeah, it's just, I, I had gone to the bathroom, and when I came back, I saw Cam's uh, jaw was still on the table as he was staring at the uh, the eight movie tickets he had just purchased. Cam, I believe <laughs> I was maybe the only person that paid you back for both nights? It was spotty. Some was people spotty. did, some people spotty. didn't. <laughs> but there was good news, though, with regards to the uh, the date, though, that happened. Yeah, so basically, when this all fell apart, I apologized profusely to everyone, and I said, okay, who's available tomorrow night? And I turned to this young lady and said, you know, are you free to come out tomorrow night, you know, for the do-over? And she was, and, you know, they are now married with two kids. So, you know what? My screw-up may have solidified the deal that led to, you know, a bright future for that family. What makes the telling of that story even better, though, Cam, is you made it sound as if you were trying to date her. Yes. <laughs> no, it was not me. Okay. Not my family. My friend, my friend Tommy, who, uh, you know, was also a bit of a Bond fan too. Yeah. Which actually probably leads us into a, an interesting connection for those who don't know about our background as a trio. And maybe we'll segue us beautifully into the film we're talking about this week. Now, listeners will know I met Cam at a Star Trek convention in Las Vegas over 10 years ago at this point now, I would say. Um, I still look back on that day and really you know, hate my choices. I really wish I had just not gone downstairs that day and just avoided the hall. And I never would have met him. And <laughs> it would have been a completely different life altogether. But we're here. Now, that year, Cam went with the aforementioned Tommy uh, as his guest to, to, to the convention. But the following year, Tyler came along and I met him for the very first time. And uh, we've been inseparable since. Yeah, we even dress as twinsies uh, on many of those occasions, if I recall correctly. Well, I mean, oftentimes you are referred to as the better looking version of me. So that makes sense. Well, you know what they say, I'm your Tinker Tanner Dr. Spy. Can't forget Arnold from True Lies, plus that agent known as George Smiley. (laughs) You really do have some of these bangs, don't you? (laughs) I I only have 12 more to go. Perfect. That's how we feel about the Bond films. <laughs> but, of course, that means we're tied to Las Vegas, and we've got a, a ton of stories about being around Las Vegas and uh, lots of anecdotes, but we do have a couple of little stories about this film in particular. So I guess that pivots us over to Cam. What are we talking about this week? Yes, we are tackling the return of Sean Connery in Diamonds Are Forever, Forever, Forever. I thought you were going to go for the last note there. I was really hoping you would. I, I I debated it. I really did. And then I was like, I just, I can't. I can't. Um. Right. Now, this is a fun but I one. I bet I know who could, though, Cam. Mm? Your Agent J, your Agent K, and badass child Agent Cody Banks. 
Boom. <laughs> Thanks for joining us, Tyler. We'll see you next time. <laughs> Don't worry. I'm writing more as we go along. <laughs> well, for me, the connection to this film doesn't go back very far apart from my first full watch of the Bond films. I hadn't caught this one. I'd I'd seen bits and bobs through the years of it playing on British television, but I don't think I'd ever sat down and watched it completely. I was more of a Pierce Brosnan, uh, you know, Goldeneye brought me into the game, and that's kind of who I stuck to for a very long time. Uh, you literally, uh, Goldeneye brought you into the game. Ah, pun. Well, Tyler, you said you had only seen a couple of the Sean Connery ones. Is this Is this your first watch of Diamonds? Yeah, so what happened, though? Cam and I, we went to the movies uh, earlier this week. Uh, we were catching The Worst Person in the World, a Norwegian film. Uh, that's how hoity-toity our uh, cinema selections are there. But uh, Cam was like, yeah, have, have you seen this one before? And I was like, yeah, of course. Like, I remember the Vegas stuff. I remembered the uh, cremation scene. When I sat down, boys, I, I realized I'd only maybe seen about, like, as you said, uh, you know, bits and pieces uh, over the years, probably through those TBS marathons, maybe 50% of this movie. Otherwise, this is the first time I sat down, watch it front to back, and uh, my, 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 jaw, my jaw was as wide open as Cam's was when he looked at his movie tickets that one night uh, for many of these sequences <laughs> throughout this. Well, I, I want to unpack why your mouth is open, but uh, Cam, what about you? What's your Diamonds connection? <laughs> So this was one of the last classic Bond movies I ever saw. I'd watched The Moors, The Daltons, and most of the Conneries, and then they did this VHS re-release where they were all coming out for affordable prices, and I was buying them up as they came out. And I remember being really excited to buy You Only Live Twice and Diamonds Are Forever because they were the two I hadn't seen. And um, this was the last one I picked up, and I remember being at my um, great aunt's house, and, uh, you know, she, my parents were there to visit and I had basically the time to sit and watch the movie there. And I was so excited. And I remember watching it and just being like, what the hell was that? Like to a 12 year old or whatever I was somewhere around that age point, um, it just felt very slow. Like the action wasn't really there. And I was so used to Bond being these action spectacles. And at that age, I wasn't the world's biggest fan of say, Dr. No, but this one felt noticeably even more low energy than that. And it's one that over the course of my life as a Bond fan, I've like had all these varying relationships with where I did not like it at 12, got a little bit older and said, oh, you know what? This one's actually kind of fun, like a live and let die, man with the golden gun kind of thing. You know, this one very much kicks off the sleazy 70s Bond trilogy. Um, and so it's kind of like for a while I was kind of positive. Then I would come back and be like, you know, I just don't like this one very much. And so, yeah, like my relationship with it has constantly sort of ebbed and flowed it's never going to be a favorite but it's one that at certain times i find kind of the kind of the weird hangout movie where i'm like this does not feel like the rest the rest of the bond movies and that's kind of why it's interesting you've used hangout movie before with a connery film and that was with your defense of thunderball so i don't know if you can get away with it in this one so much well that one you're hanging out underwater that's the uh difference ah uh okay now we're hanging out with uh drunk connery in vegas right Right. Yeah. yeah. Well, um, I think before we talk about how we got to Diamonds after On Her Majesty's, let's look at the letterbox.com synopsis. It's a long one. It truly does go on forever. <laughs> Diamonds are forever. The man who made 007 a household number. Diamonds are stolen only to be sold again in the international market. James Bond infiltrates a smuggling mission to find out who's guilty 
The mission takes him to Las Vegas where Bond meets his archenemy, Blofeld. Yeah, sure. I mean, it's a very complex plot, and I feel like they did the best job they could summing it up. Yeah, now, Cam, I don't know if you realize this, but um, <clears throat> Vern Troyer was in this movie. Um, he, he, he played Blofeld. <laughs> he played one of the diamonds. <laughs> oh, wow, that's a callback right there. Oh. Yeah. Uh, for those who haven't checked out our Men in Black episode, go back and have a listen to where that joke came from. Uh, it's all at Cam's expense. But um, Cam, I think you should blow up our pants and uh, tell us how we got these diamonds. <laughs> wow. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, in the previous film, you had George Lazenby as the new Bond, and he got real flaky after that movie's done and was convinced the counterculture was taking over, Bond was dead, so Eon was left without an actor. And they decided they were going to have an American James Bond. They really wanted to appeal to the American market. They thought that would be interesting. And so they considered actors like Burt Reynolds, Adam West, Robert Wagner. They also looked at a couple other British people. Like they looked at Michael Gambon, as well as Roger Moore, who was busy with the Persuaders. But they were very happy with a young actor named John Gavin. And they cast him. John Gavin's probably best known as Sam Loomis in the original Psycho, the Alfred Hitchcock film. And... They were going to go with John Gavin and do something a little bit different. But the United Artists exec, David Picker, was, you know, kind of speaking on behalf of United Artists, saying, we're not so confident in an American bond. We want to do something maybe that will bring an audience back after the shakeup of Lazenby. And so he pursued Connery and won him over with a record payday of $1.25 million that Connery ultimately gave to a Scottish International Education Trust he was establishing. So... This was the one thing that could get Connery back. And also, he wanted power, and he got it. He had a deal where the producers were not allowed to give him any input whatsoever on the set of the movie. <laughs> hey, hey, Sean, that scene, I think we could do it. No, no, we're not doing that. Nope. Okay. Yeah. It, it seems like Broccoli was around during the production, but Harry Saltzman was not. Like, Connery did not like Saltzman. And they had a bit of an encounter right up early in the, you know, the shoot, and he was gone. Seltzman was out of there. I mean, it's interesting because you look back on the bit you said before with the money, and there's always that sort of joke that Connery was always after the money and that kind of thing. But, hey, he gave it all to starting a foundation for you know, Scottish artists to work on their art without having to go abroad and stuff. So it's kind of an altruistic way of spending your money. Um, I mean, he does make some other strange choices in his life that I'm not going to say was a good idea. But in this circumstance, I'm all for what he did. Yeah. I mean, I guess if you can get that payday and do something good with it, sure. And um, they looked at hiring Peter Hunt to come back to direct the film after, you know, Honor Majesties. But he was busy with another project. So they turned back to Guy Hamilton, who had done Goldfinger, which was kind of fitting because they were really looking at bringing this series back to the Goldfinger kind of fantastic direction they had for that movie especially coming off of the very tragedy laced honor majesties and uh, hamilton had you know since goldfinger done movies like funeral in berlin and battle of britain and so he was coming back to the fold and richard maybaum the guy who's written pretty much every movie so far or at least co-written uh, was adapting the book diamonds are forever initially when it was going to be a lazenby vehicle he actually had a revenge sort of tinged angle on it that would bring back characters like Draco and Irma Bunt from Honor Majesties and make it much more of a clear continuation of that. But obviously, with Lazenby and Hunt gone, that was not going to be the case. So they looked at 
doing some kind of radical shifting, setting it in Southeast Asia before coming back to the novel, which is set largely in Las Vegas. And he was going to work in elements like Victorian locomotives, hydroelectric uh, power plants, things that were more book-based. But um, he also, Maybaum was really interested in introducing Goldfinger's twin brother. That was something that was a bit of a passion project for him. He would pitch time to time, and he really thought this would be a cool idea. And they actually wrote a draft of this being you know, Blofeld's twin brother going after diamonds. Do we, do we have a name for his brother? Okay, so Arik Silverfinger is the name. <laughs> Bronze boy. <laughs> I think the last name would stay the same, wouldn't it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, probably. <laughs> uh, I, I don't know. Arik is such a peculiar name. Like, it's some other family names, but I'm sure there is a, a script version out there with that name on it. Is there a male name that sounds like the word diamond? No. <laughs> Harmon? Sure. Yeah, I'll take it. Uh. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so Maybaum kind of hit a wall with the development. So they brought in an American writer named Tom Mankiewicz. And he was suggested by, um, by a United Artist, David Picker. And he had a bit of a family lineage in the industry. His um, father was Joseph Mankiewicz, the celebrated film director who'd done movies like All About Eve and Cleopatra. And he was also the nephew of writer Herman Mankiewicz, who co-wrote Citizen Kane and had a movie based around him called Mank that came out. Uh... Tyler, was that last year? It was 2020. Okay, 2020, yeah. And um, so Tom Mankiewicz had had some success. He'd worked in TV. He'd also done a 1968, basically the epitome of the 60s movie called The Sweetest Ride. But he was coming off a Broadway musical called Georgie, and that's what got him this job. They were really big fans of that play. And Mankiewicz would go on to do things like Eagle Has Landed. He would be a consultant on Superman. And he would also direct movies like Dragnet and Delirious. So he has definitely a pedigree. And he's someone who very much tackles the character aspects of this movie, as well as the lot, like the dialogue and the lines. So if you're a fan of kind of the irreverent quips of this movie, these all fall on him, and he would stick with the franchise with Man uh, with the Golden Gun, as well as Live and Let Die, and also have a bit of input on The Spy Who Loved Me. I See, that name you said, though, Mankiewicz, has that appeared on the podcast before? Have we tackled something that he's spoken about, apart from where uh, the eagle has landed? No, I think it's just Eagle has landed, to the best of my memory. Hmm. Maybe it's just you mentioned other films, like Cleopatra or something, and the family names come in before. Yeah, and uh, so... One of the aspects of the story, though, that he did work in that was not in the Maybaum drafts was the Willard White stuff. And that came from Cubby Broccoli having a dream that he was looking through the window of Howard Hughes's apartment. And then he realized it was an imposter. And so he woke up, <laughs> grabbed the phone and was like, boy, have I got an inspiration for you guys. <laughs> I've got the next Bond film. Here we go. Howard Hughes. Yeah. Yeah. Well, do you know, my pitch would have been. Hmm. Jack Ryan, Ethan Hunt, plus the awesome man from Unk. Oh. We walked into that one. We walked into that one. <laughs> really did. <Yeah. laughs> really did. They also scrapped a yacht race finale um, and uh, that Maybaum was a big fan of, but Mankiewicz just said did not work on the page. And um, so when it came to casting... There's some really interesting casting choices in this movie. Willard White, the character I referred to earlier, they cast Jimmy Dean, who was a country music star, as well as the pitchman for Jimmy Dean Pure Pork Sausage Company, a company he had obviously founded, given that it bears his name. 
But he was also working on the Vegas Strip as it was back then, which is now uh, Fremont Street or Old Vegas, uh, as a as a lounge act. So he was working for the Howard Hughes person at the time. Yeah, and uh, for sure. And then Putter Smith, who was cast as Mr. Kidd, was also a musician. He was with Thelonious Monk as a bass player. And then they paired him up with character actor Bruce Glover, who'd done a lot of TV and was kind of one of those recognizable faces. Um, Jill St. John, I actually thought there would be a lot of alternates for that role, but it doesn't seem like there really were. She was, um, you know, friendly with the Broccoli family. They knew who she was, and they decided to bring her in. And she is the first American Bond girl, so that's pretty notable. It was something that was heavily marketed at the time. I, I am devastated. I did not know that the bass player from Thelonious Monk uh, was there. Otherwise, I would have saved that uh, man from Unk rhyme um, for the Thelonious Monk uh, reference. And so the magic of podcasting, we can just redo this if you'd like. <laughs> <laughs> have either of you listened to Thelonious Monk? No. Yes. Uh, I, it, it's It's really good. Is it? I've never heard it at all. What is it like? It's like jazz sort of stuff. Was it, like, quite experimental at the time? Yeah, you, you could say that. But, um, yeah, it was pretty cool. Like, it, and I, it's also, like, they never, like, blew up, but it's, like, very influential in, like, kind of the music uh, nowadays. Well, I don't know about nowadays. It's all about, like, rap and R&B, but... <laughs> Taylor Swift is a huge fan. <laughs> <laughs> She'll be sampling on her next track. That's right, that's right. Um, well, before you move on, uh, Cam, it is worth stating that there's two things that we need to make mention of. Firstly... We're having a Jill St. John season, apparently, after last week's The Liquidator, so she's back on the show. It's not the only connection that Diamonds Are Forever has to last week's film, The Liquidator, but you also mentioned Bruce Glover. Mm-hmm. Yes. And our our interview this week, uh, you'll see it coming out on Friday, is with the man himself, uh, Cam. His Cam, in all of his strength and power, he sat down and recorded a phone call with Bruce Glover straight to his microphone uh, for 90 minutes of an interview. Uh, it, I've just listened to an edit of it today. It's a hell of an interview, and we're looking forward to you hearing it later this week. Yeah, it was a really fun one, and he definitely has some fascinating insights into not just the uh, character, but also about acting just in general. Yeah, so check that out on Friday, guys. But uh, Cam, continue. Yeah, um, so just to finish it up, um, Howard Hughes was obviously a strong figure in Vegas at the time and made this whole production actually very smooth for everyone. He really kind of uh, strong-armed the city of Vegas to kind of giving them what they wanted, shutting down streets, and basically just letting the whole cast and crew live a party lifestyle for the entire shoot. Like, all the bills were covered, hotels were free, and every story you see is just like everyone being like, yeah, we were gambling every night. We were having a great time. It was just party central. Connery was having a blast. So... Seems like they had a lot of fun. <laughs> that sounds like us every August. Sure, sure. And apparently Connery was really golfing a lot. Collectively, how much have we gambled <laughs> oh. over oh. the last decade in Vegas? It's under... Um, it's a very low number. It, it's it's, like yeah, under, it's three digits and a yeah. low three. I, I, we, none of us are, are, are gamblers. No, no. No, we we don't do Vegas very well, if you look at it particularly. <laughs> we kind of let the side down when we go there. We're in bed by 10. Yeah, we don't live the spirit of Vegas, I feel. Unless somebody's accidentally ingesting uh, edibles. <laughs> yeah, who could that have been? Well, it wasn't me, and it wasn't Scott. <laughs> cut that, cut that, cut that, cut that. <laughs> accidentally is the key word there, folks. <laughs> Hi, Cam's parents. 
they know the story. <laughs> but um, as I said, Peter Hunt was not available. So this was actually the first time that he hadn't had input on the editing of the film because he directed the last one with John Glenn editing. But this time they brought in two outsiders to the company. You had um, Burt Bates, who had worked on Battle of Britain with Guy Hamilton, and also John W. Holmes, who did the Andromeda strain. So, I mean, I'm sure we'll talk about pacing and just general vibe of the movie because it does feel different. This one does stand out. And uh, Bates would go on to also work on Live and Let Die as well. But uh, the budget for this movie was $7.2 million. Domestically, it did 43.8. International, 72.2 for a worldwide total of $116 million. That is insane. $1971. That is insane. Yeah. <laughs> I get it, though. People were hungry for a, a good Bond. Not to slag off All Their Majesties. I'm a big fan of that film. I wasn't a big fan of the actor. But I, they wanted Connery back, and this is, this is what they got. Yeah. Didn't it do better than You Only Live Twice as well? Uh, the, I believe so, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it was like that pent-up demand for Connery was really there. And just the top three for the year. Number one was Billy Jack, a movie I think we all very strongly remember. <laughs> number two... <laughs> I had a line there, but I'm not going to do it. <laughs> oh. Number two was Fiddler on the Roof. And number three was Diamonds Are Forever. And uh, the movie would get an Oscar nomination for Best Sound. And this would be it for Connery. Uh, other than the unofficial movie we'll tackle later down the road. But Connery had a quote. He said, I came back for the one. That was the understanding. I've got other things to do. <laughs> Door slam sound effect. <laughs> Bag of money gets lifted as he runs out the wall. Yeah. Um, That's right. I, it, it's funny you should um, mention the, the, the one and done thing. I, it's so strange that he comes back, collects that check, and then it makes mega bucks, and then you just don't. He just doesn't want to do it again. I, I almost respect the just, you know, well, obviously he kind of ruins it 12 years later, but sort of taking your money and going, I kind of respect that. Yeah, because his career wasn't like the most concrete place at that point. Like he put out a lot of duds. He was doing stuff like, you know, Zardoz in the 70s. It would have been so easy for him to just be like, you know what, I'll do two more Bond films just to kind of, you know, make some money and have some established hits. But he didn't do that, and it wouldn't really be until um, The Untouchables that he really was solidified again as a major box office force. Well, listeners probably don't know this, but when we're in Vegas, we're dressing like Connery in Zardoz. <laughs> it, it's between that and Never Say Never Again with the dungarees for me. Mm-hmm. It's, uh, that's basically all my wardrobe is, is uh, red leotards and uh, dungarees. Yeah, pretty much. I mean, I only wear that after the edibles, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> moving on, moving on! <laughs> well chaps i suggest we keep leaning on that tutor and we talk about diamonds are forever now tyler you're our guest this is your first time with diamonds i am genuinely curious to know what you think of this film so go for it okay so um it's entertaining but in, in a way that like trash can be entertaining you know and as i navigate through a lot of the the racism misogyny and homophobia like percolating throughout this it's kind of like i I, i'm i'm torn in that like i didn't feel as if this movie dragged at all 
but there's so many cringeworthy moments where it's okay you can look at things you know you know 40 50 years later and be like ah oh, they didn't know what they were doing back then a lot of this stuff they knew exactly what they were doing and i just don't think that they cared so much and you know whether it's um ha having black women turn into gorillas or um really uh, portray the uh, two gay villains as complete weirdos, and the fact that they're gay is just for the sake of it. It's a way of signaling that these villains were weird, and it's because they're gay. And just like uh, constantly referring to the you know the Bond girls as idiots or tossing them mm. out windows, it's just kind of like and like I I get it. Like Bond's never been known for like progressive politics with regards to all those things I I, I listed there, but this one I it, it might kind of take the cake um they're at least a top three outing when it comes to those kinds of factors that uh, make people kind of um i don't know make their screen skin crawl to a certain degree but there are sequences in here like you know that that race through uh fremont was like really fun and then just even dopey things like jumping onto the uh moon lander with the waving robot arms it's just like <laughs> how can you not be entertained by this movie <laughs> um but I, 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 it's a constant complaint about Bond films, which, and I, and it's not even really a complaint. It's just the plots don't really ultimately matter. It's about the set pieces and the mood and the tone and the quips, the characters that you're getting. But, but the plot in this one was even more indiscernible than kind of the average one. Uh, you know, just something to do with space lasers by the time you get to the end of it. So th that's my main takeaway. I was entertained, but I cringed a lot. I actually, um, you know, and I'll definitely touch on, there's a lot of uh, things that just don't hold up now in terms of just being really bad. But that show that they go to where the woman turns into a gorilla, did you know that was a real show in Las Vegas they just filmed? Oh. I, I was not aware, but wow. it does not surprise me that Vegas would be doing something like that 50 years ago. Yeah, the Zambora show was actually an event at Circus Circus that was just going on day to day. I guess so it's a little bit the 70s equivalent of when Bond goes to the bodies exhibit in Casino Royale. So, yeah, weird. I like the bodies exhibit more. Yeah, I think we all do. Okay. <laughs> when do you think they got rid of that uh, thing in Vegas? Not bodies, but the... Uh... That is a great question. I mean, the 70s, it's much more of that kind of seedy Vegas vibe yeah. where a lot more mob interference. So I would guess... As Vegas becomes more family-friendly, that would have been out the door immediately. Uh, there, there's a great line in the television series Angel where uh, he goes to Vegas with his crew and the title character, the vampire, gets tossed out of the casino. And he remarks, it was so much friendlier here uh, when the mob ran it all. And it's just like, yeah, I get it. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe no friendlier for some people. Exactly. Yeah. I, I think that's a very good point yeah. as well. Yeah. Well, okay. And I, 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 I actually would tend to agree. I won't get to my thoughts yet. I'll throw it to Cam in a second. But I totally get where you're coming from. For you know, Bonds so far leading up to this point have had a lot of icky moments. I look at say Pussy Galore and Goldfinger and that tussle in the in the haystack, and you know something like Aki and Kissy in You Only Live Twice can be a bit problematic as well. Um, I think this is probably the one out of all of them so far that is the most problematic, which is the strangest because it's the out of the ones we've done, it's actually the closest to now. Yeah, I noticed that as well. And that like you usually have maybe like one moment or one character or one scene that comes across as like, 
we need to have the conversation about this misogynistic moment in this movie. Whereas like this movie, it's really throughout and the characters, the female characters are written to be like of devolving intelligence through the course of the movie. And it, it's just a very strange choice that I've never really understood because when you go earlier on, you have that one scene with Pussy Galore, but like otherwise she's a very strong, capable character. Well, it's also kind of the filmmakers remarking on their depictions of, of the women characters in this as being dumb. They're saying that very explicitly. Like James Bond, like mm-hmm. literally calls, you know, her an idiot, or, or like, um, you know, we, we also have like him stuffing Thumper and Bambi underneath a pool, torturing them to like. It's just like, oh dear, <laughs> like I just. Yes, uh, icky moments uh, throughout. Yeah, and then there's like a moment I- where Bond just galore. like randomly, yeah, icky galore. <laughs> there's a moment where like Bond just like randomly slaps like Tiffany, and I and I always forget that that moment's coming because it comes so out of nowhere, and it's just yeah, like weird choices like that that they kind of underline the problems with the old Bond movies, but they feel somewhat more magnified in this film, and I don't even understand why. Well, even just t- taking off like the the top of a woman's swimsuit. Like, like forcibly mm-hmm. removing it from her and making her scream. It's, it's like, oh, God. But it was done for laughs, which, you know, uh, you know, there's something I want to get off your chest. I'm just like, okay. You know, it's just, it's like a, a lot of those uncomfortable moments. And, and that's why I kind of, I feel comfortable describing it as kind of entertaining trash. But you are getting into kind of this period of the 70s where you guys had reference it. It's more of kind of a, a grimier decade. Yeah, definitely. I always use, and uh, Cam made this analogy over a year ago, I think for, uh, maybe it was one of our dinosaurs is missing or another one of those racist films we tackled last year, where it's about if the character or the moment or the, the, the choices in the film overpower the film, if there's too much of it, and then the film becomes a problem. I don't necessarily think this film has as much of it to make it overpower the film for me. I think there's other stuff in the film that make it kind of fun, like you've said, Tyler. So I don't, tend to hang on to some of this stuff. I'd like to point it out. I'm glad we're pointing it out at the start. Um, but it, it doesn't drag it down to the point of no return for me, I will say that. No, I, I mean, I feel very much the same way. And I wonder if that's because the movie's so scattershot that it's not focusing on any one thing. It's like you kind of cringe at a moment, but then it's bouncing off in some other direction. And you kind of go like, oh, where where are we going now? Yeah. Well, Cam, what do you think? You're probably the guy who's seen it the most amount of times because obviously you're clearly a massive fan of Diamonds Are Forever. <laughs> clearly. <laughs> but um what do you think now rearview mirror 50 odd years later it's so weird and that i've said my relationship with this one has just changed so much and it's one that i find now is kind of like this one i'll just like throw on it's sort of like the sleepy day bond movie and i think it has all to do with vibe and atmosphere of this one and that the plot is a shambles there's <laughs> iffy moments galore but there's also so much weirdness that i can't help but be fascinated by it Um, You know, we've talked about we're all Star Trek fans and I really am a big fan of the original series because moment to moment there's just scenes or lines or quips or whatever that you kind of go like, where did that come from? Like what a strange moment that no other film could, you know, boast, you know, having that happen within it. And like Diamonds Are Forever is kind of a treasure trove of those. And I look at so many blockbusters now which are so refined. It's like every line has been workshopped. You know, there's no kind of you know, off the kind of the beaten track moments or weirdo asides or diversions. And like, that's all this movie is. So, you know, with sort of that sort of stuff, I find it interesting just as being a Bond fan, because it's definitely the least focused, I think, of any of the Bond films. And also, 
just the Vegas vibe, I find a lot of fun being someone who goes to Vegas, you know, annually when there's not a pandemic on. Um, I just love watching old Vegas, seeing the locations. So, you know, I kind of just find it this weird, fun kind of movie that has a lot of problems. But I can't, like, also argue that, like, they didn't know how to write and cast characters that kind of pop where you're like... I don't really like what they're doing with this character, but, like, for some reason, they stick in the mind. Like, everyone feels kind of iconic in this movie for reasons that have nothing to do with storytelling or character development. And uh, it does kick off, as I said, the sleazy 70s Bond trilogy. I don't think this is the strongest entry. I think they figure it out a little bit better in Live and Let Die, but it's sort of interesting as the one that sort of kicks off that trend. Well, I mean, like, as you said, I couldn't see... Avengers Endgame having a chase with a lunar buggy with jangly arms coming out the side. <laughs> it's just too weird. And that scene makes no sense in the film. I have no idea why there's a moon studio in the, that facility. I um, I have another question. Why are the astronauts moving in slow motion to stop him? <laughs> <laughs> They've been having the same edibles, Cam. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but... There's something that I find fascinating apart from the Vegas side, and I agree. We've all got this connection to Vegas, and, I, and I'm glad we've got Tyler here to talk about it because we're all really connected to this city. But it's it's like watching a bit of a car crash some of the time in this film. Like the ending, I think maybe we'll get to it, is such a weak ending, and yet they're trying to evoke Goldfinger, which has one of the best Connery sort of you know big battles at the end with Odd Job. It fought Knox. It sticks in your mind. This doesn't stick in your mind at all, apart from it being completely bat s crazy with the old batho spear and all that sort of stuff. It's just an insane set of choices, and I have to think there was just a lot of edibles going around. Yeah, I find the movie falls apart when you get to that back half, and it's like let's focus on the big finale because I think that finale really sucks. And when you compare it to the finale of the previous film, which also had a helicopter assault, which is unbelievable and just directed just top-level filmmaking there, this one is like, kind of feels like Bargain Basement. Is this the closest one to like Austin Powers? Do you think this is what Mike Myers is taking most of his inspiration from when it comes to his Bond inspirations here? You get a lot of the wardrobe and some of the quirkier aspects from Honor Majesty's Secret Service, but... In terms of kind of overall vibe and feel, I would say definitely this one. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. I think, and, and also the, I've never been a big fan of the Roger Moore films, personally. I find them all, I mean, they, they have their moments for me, but I find the, the whole tone of them to be a bit too, not what I'm looking for in a Bond film. And this is, of the Conneries, the closest to that tone for me. Um, I suppose, pivoting on to, to my thoughts on it, I and I, I, we've kind of touched on it from both of your thoughts, guys. But for me, this is like everything that's good and everything that's bad about a Connery film in one. You've got some of the great stunts. You've got the man himself, the guy who I think is the best Bond of all time, Sean Connery, back in the tuxedo. Great to see. Um, and, you know, him just on, on the screen just oozes sex appeal. He is Bond to me, even in this whole like dad Bond shape that he's in in the 70s like he's not a, a fit man he was in the early 60s but he still looks the part and but then and as as we've also talked about all these bad things all these icky moments icky galore is what we think is going to be the na name of this episode <laughs> um and i i can't look past that but i can't look away yeah it is like that kind of car crash that you're like 
Well, Tyler and I on one of my other podcasts, uh, Arnie Geddon, we talked about Batman and Robin. And like Batman and Robin is a movie that I think a lot of people are just like, I can't watch it. It's so horrible. I don't don't even mention it to me. Whereas like, I think when we revisit it, it's kind of this fascinating mess. And that kind of feels like Diamonds where it's not artistically on the level of Honor Majesties. It's not, you know, working. I always find it weird that Guy Hamilton directed this movie because he also did Goldfinger, which feels almost like Raiders where it's on Raiders Lost Ark because it feels like it's just on rails as an action movie. It's so just tightly constructed. Whereas like Guy Hamilton here, I'm like, I don't even know what he's doing. He feels so loose and just kind of relaxed. I just wonder if there was a lot of partying it up in Vegas and uh, focus on kind of making a tightly constructed movie was out the window. You you mentioned Batman and Robin, which I think is a really good comparison. But another one I'd point to is... Nick Fury, Xander Cage, with a bit of Sharon Carter rage. (laughs) (laughs) Can't argue with that. (laughs) Only 10 more to go. Well, I I guess uh, I'm counting them down. (laughs) I want to ask you a question, Tyler, because you and I um, (laughs) were not so long ago referencing we'd both seen the movie (laughs) um, Every Which Way But Loose. Yes. Which is the, like, Clint Eastwood orangutan uh, team-up movie from the 70s. And, like, there was this whole vibe of these 70s hangout comedies that it's kind of like plot is out the window and it's just characters doing weird things for often a torturous amount of time. And, like, you'd get the odd good one, like Smokey and the Bandit, but, like, a lot of them are just weird and kind of strange to just watch and i feel like diamonds is almost putting its foot in that sort of pool before a lot of those movies emerge i I just wonder how like how soon had it been since like the production code had been eliminated within hollywood cam do you recall yeah so bonnie and clyde is 68 so it's shortly after that i just wonder if hollywood is trying to rethink itself and what it can do you know maybe i'm not saying it's issuing some sort of formula here but I, I just wonder if that kind of loosens things up to a certain degree and they're just going to say well what can we do that we couldn't do before um and you, you watch something like any which way bit loose for an example which is not a movie that we like but I, I watched it because my parents recommended it to my sister and I at like age eight and yeah we're like um it, it certainly has that nostalgia factor for folks from that era but I think if we're looking at it objectively, much like, you know, uh, Diamonds, it just makes you go like, huh, I guess it must have been novel at the time, but it's not quite translating, you know, 50 years later. I I can hear people laughing in the aisles when they uh, shove the bomb up Bruce Glover's backside at the end of the film in in 71. Like, I, I legit hate that moment, and I've never liked that moment. Like, when I was 12... I didn't really um, consider the, you know, all the baggage to do with Winton Kid. I just thought they were really cool because I was like, I love Jaws. I love Odd Job. And these two come across as very iconic and actually very capable in a way that a lot of the henchmen or hench people in Bond films aren't, where they actually get the drop on Bond like twice, which some of them never do. And so I just thought they were really neat. And I didn't like how the movie would take these kind of detours to turn them into a joke in a moment like that. And it's also really interesting to watch it last night and pay a lot of attention to how um, Mr. Wint reacts when Kid goes over the side on fire. And like there is a look of genuine like grief and horror on his face when he sees this. And then it cuts to that joke. And it's like, it feels like an actor trying to, you know, kind of get into the psychology of seeing his partner, obviously in 
mortal peril. But then the movie's like, okay, now let's make this gag out of it. And I really have always hated that because it undercuts sort of the threat of, you know, two capable henchmen. Um, it just kind of does it for a cheap gag. Well, I'll, I'll extend that. Not only does it undercut, it undercuts the sort of energy that they're building in the film and underscores the problem that I mentioned about it being both good and bad. So it builds up this whole thing and you see him lose his partner. They are a gay couple and that's like the first one Bond have ever tackled. And they really ever tackled that again in in the 25 films. I mean, no. The closest I think would be um, Q having, you know, it seems like a male date in No Time to Die. And you think that's a long time. Well, we did have like Silver was kind of flirting with Bond, but it wasn't like he was defined sure. by his sexuality and it wasn't even made explicit maybe what is. Like, it seemed like he was more on a spectrum than anything else. Yeah, and I want to actually just take this moment to also point uh, listeners over to a YouTube video done by friends of the show, David Lowbridge Ellis from License to Queer and Calvin Dyson, who did a hour and a half deep dive video into queer representation in Bond. It's a just fascinating video. And they go at length into the um, Mr. Uh, Wint and Kid and just how for two you know young gay men to see a gay couple on screen for like, I think both of them, this was the first time they'd seen that portrayed in a movie, which is, I guess, interesting. And it just makes, I guess, the relationship the audience has with these two characters more complicated than just kind of a horrible and, you know, kind of swipe away. I was also watching, um, and, and yeah, we're going to get to likes in a second, folks. We're not just going to keep bagging on this film. But I was watching the another Calvin Dyson video. And just to say, both Calvin and David are, are going to be back on the show in the next couple of months as well. We're excited to have them both back on. Um, Calvin Dyson did a video on the deleted scenes of Diamonds Are Forever. And at one point, there's an, an extended scene with Winton Kidd as they assassinate the, uh, the the act, the, the comedian. In Shady Tree. Shady Tree, thank you. And in this scene, they actually, because you see them enter the office in the film, but actually the extended version of the scene is that they then pull out a gun, shoot him in the back of the head. Hmm. So it really has some sort of stakes to that moment. And it's, it's like quite a sharp turn the film takes. You see the guy gets shot in the back of the head and he dies in front of you. And you give it gives them this sort of menace to the character, but instead they just cut away in this film. And I, I think that's a shame. Yeah. But... Um, as I said, we're going to stop bagging on it. So let's talk about things we did like. So I'm going to throw to you first, Tyler. Give me something you liked about Diamonds Are Forever. Elephants on the casino floor. Why isn't that a th- <laughs> like a thing anymore? Like, come on. <laughs> and also, where can I get one of those polka dot button up shirts that all the uh, casino or the uh, circus circus uh, employees <laughs> were forced to wear? Well, maybe we should pivot this into just discussion of like the 70s Vegas representation yeah. because like it is a ton of fun. And like one thing about Bond movies is they're great travelogues a lot of the time. And as a travelogue of 1970s Vegas, this one is pretty great. Well, okay. So I've got a, a another little thought, but like when the guy at the very start was like, say, like Bond was like, where is he? Cairo. And then they're at like a casino in Egypt. I was like, oh, maybe that's like the Luxor uh, on like the Vegas Strip hmm. or something like that. But we did have like the Tropicana featured, uh, the aforementioned Circus Circus. That's when this strip wasn't really this strip as we know it. You know, it's been 50 years. And I, I think it was around the late 80s, early 90s that they started turning the strip into more of a kind of a, a family friendly, friendly, but more like racy sort of Disneyland sort of dealio. And I like for me, it's like Fremont is kind of like the go to Vegas there. And I, just the way that they're depicting it, 
it was cool because you could look at it and to us, like we like how vintage it looks now, but at the time it would have looked like seriously contemporary and, and like very suave to be hanging out there. And so it just like, like you said, kind of like the atmosphere that's able to dig into and create there uh, with regards to Vegas. I, I thought that was pretty cool. Yeah, like I have stayed at the Tropicana. Hasn't changed a bit. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, it's also worth mentioning that the the White House, which is the the, the bad guys uh, hotel, is actually what is now the, well, I think it's now the H Hotel, but it used to be the Hilton Hotel back in the day. So that's still standing, that hotel as well. And I've stayed there, and I can confirm that I did sleep on a bed made out of uh, fish tanks. Yeah, what is that? That looks so uncomfortable. There's no mattress. They're just sleeping on plastic. Yeah. <laughs> it's crazy. She seemed she seemed comfortable, I'll just say. Yeah, so it seems. Yeah, like um and you know, we should just maybe tell the story because when we were in Las Vegas, we actually visited an iconic location. I mean, we've been to Fremont Street. We've seen a lot of the sites and casinos that they drive past in the big chase scene. But um we decided to go to the crematorium where Winton Kid Knockout Bond. It's the um, Dignity Memorial on Palm Drive, I believe, in Las Vegas. And it was a scorching, scorching hot day. And all we had was a screen cap of, you know, the scene in the movie. And it was like, well, let's find that on this very large acreage of funeral, uh, you know, locations. I feel like we should hand over to Tyler for the rest of the story because uh, it's one of the reasons we have him on because much as there is photo evidence of me and Cam at this place, there's zero photo evidence that Tyler was there, but he was definitely there. Yeah, because I was turned into the photographer for uh, you guys, which was uh, very (laughs) inclusive. But here's the deal. That day, like we had rented a giant beast of a van, like a literally a 15-seater van so that we could drive to uh, the Grand Canyon the following morning at uh, like 5 a.m., which is wonderful because I got to be the driver. And so throughout that morning on the way to the crematorium, which we were trying to find for a while, um, I'm learning how to drive what is essentially like a bus. And so the weather outside, meanwhile, it like they're talking about like record setting temperatures for like, I don't know, that day or whatever. It was 48 degrees Celsius, which like, yeah. like unreal. I'd never experienced heat like that. And it felt as if like, you know, when you open up like kind of your oven and you're blasted with kind of like the, the heat coming out of there, that was like everywhere you would walk. Yeah, like I don't even like sunburn easily at all. And I got like a flash burn after like one day at a mall just like i think we were outside for maybe half an hour or something we, like we that. kept running into the shade whenever we could like it was, it was just nightmarish and so we finally make our way over to the crematorium i leave my uh, my coke zero inside this uh, bus um that was a mistake because when i came back maybe what uh 30 40 minutes <laughs> later it, it it felt like drinking hot soup I uh, <laughs> I had to had to toss that, but yeah, we went roaming around uh, looking for this. We were there like it was weird because it wasn't as if like the crematorium was incredibly expansive. Like it uh, like the it was on some acreage though, but there were only like a select number of these um, I, I guess like memorials that you could go visit. But we we were trying to line up the exact angle of like where things were, and it took us fellas how long like maybe 20 minutes to kind of figure out where exactly the the exact locations were it it was 20 minutes of 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 setting it up and also dealing with the awkward situation of there being a member of staff tending to the crematorium (laughs) 
uh, doing his job whilst there's three nerds trying to do a Bond photo. Um, and I mean, it's interesting that the place is called the Dignity uh, Crematorium because we, uh, you know, we probably didn't show much dignity on that day. Well, it was so awkward because there was like this grieving family, and Cam kept trying to shush them. Well, uh, we did the photo in the video, and I was just like, oh, man, that, that's not how I would treat a grieving family. But you do you, boo. But I remember we were looking at, like, a screen grab of that, and we were like, okay, looking at the stained glass image that's, you know, in the background of the shot, and then also just kind of the layout of that sort of little courtyard they're at. And it's like we're just, like, gazing around all this acreage being like, where is that? And it was actually in, like, a building that had, like, all of these crypts in it. And uh, yeah, we did a photo right in the spot and they'd actually turned the um, stained glass image in the window upside down. So it's changed since 1971. But I got to say, pretty nice place. If, uh, you know, when I pass on, I'd be okay being, you know, spending my eternity there. In 48 degree heat. Uh, do you know who else would? Who? Uh, Bucky Barnes, the Winter Soldier and Vesper Lind should have told her. Mm. I, I don't think I can keep doing this. Only nine more to go. <laughs> well, uh, all right, Cam, over to you. What's something you liked about Diamonds Are Forever? Um, yeah, like I find this movie to be through Tom Mankiewicz. And I think a lot of people have a very mixed opinion of him because a lot of what he introduces becomes sort of those goofy Bond elements that carry through really the whole Roger Moore era. But what I think he's really good at is just like the lines in this movie and the characters feel just kind of punchy. And it's like, these characters and actors are given, like, not a whole lot to work with. Like, they really aren't. And yet they all feel very distinct. They have very sharp dialogue. I think, like, Charles Gray is easily my least favorite Blofeld. And yet he has some of the most fun dialogue to toss out. And it just feels like Mankiewicz, you know, it was smoke coming off the pen when he was writing all of this dialogue. And it's very quotable. Like... I don't tend to walk around reciting movie quotes very much, even from James Bond movies, but my sister and I will often quote back lines from Diamonds Are Forever just because they really stick in your head. It's always the scene with Plenty O'Toole and James <laughs> Bond where she walks up to him at the table and it's like, hi, I'm Plenty, but of course you are. And I, I will quote that, the but of course you are, to anyone who introduced themselves to me from, from, from for the last few years, at least anyway. It's actually really insufferable. There is a weird Blofeld line at the end where he says, like, someone, like, the, the powers that are opposing them are flexing their power like impotent beach boys. And I'm like, you would never hear that line in another movie. Like, I don't, like, that's kind of what makes this movie interesting to me is so much the dialogue is so specific and weird that I can't help but sit forward and be like, I don't hear dialogue like this in movies anymore. Well, like, there's other movies I'd compare it to, like Johnny English, La Femme Nikita, and many suspect Madonna from Evita. <laughs> Eva Perone. <laughs> You're working hard to get these ones in, aren't you? I'm giving you guys gold. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Guest gold. It's, it's diamond. It's diamond. Um, well, maybe we should talk about Blofeld while we're here. Okay. I mean, Vern Troyer. Because uh, I, I agree. I think Charles... <laughs> of course. Uh... <laughs> Sorry. Um, this version of Blofeld is all over the place. And he's not the one people think about when they think of Blofeld. That's probably Donald Pleasant's You Only Live Twice. But I still like seeing Blofeld in drag. 
And I still find right. it to be absolutely a riot, but I don't think it works as a menacing villain. Oh, he's not menacing. <laughs> That's for sure. Like they, I feel like once Blofeld enters the picture in this movie, things just, everything hits the fan. Like we're just going a thousand directions. When we've got double Blofelds and voice boxes and like his withering quips and whatever, I'm like, we have just gone full blown camp with this character. I'm sorry, but if we're talking about stuff that we like I, 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 and withering quips, uh, I, I'm going to go to uh, Bond here with, uh, I'm afraid you caught me with more than my hands up. That is like an all-timer right there. <laughs> that, that, is, that's, that is a, co- a top Connery line. Well, I, I suppose I will actually pivot to the man himself. It's great to see Connery back in the role. I think compared to some of his previous performances, he's actually having a lot more fun here. And he seems just really relaxed but engaged in the role of of James Bond and it makes me wish that maybe he'd been in all the Majesty Secret Service like I said because he's he's just the guy he's great as Bond interesting you see I don't feel as favorable towards him in this movie he seems kind of grumpy and I mean we are a long ways away from kind of the lethal stealth assassin of Dr. No even into Goldfinger like Connery <laughs> he is shambling through this movie like um I believe it was a friend of the show Nathan who's appeared on our uh, couple episodes when we were on Taken 3 talked about the Samuel Jackson um anecdote with Nick Fury where Sam Jackson has said like I don't run on camera I can't make it look cool don't ask me to do it it feels like Connery had a similar demand on Diamonds Are Forever it just feels like he's just kind of taking it easy having his leisurely time walking around he seems like he's like just kind of gritting his teeth a lot of the time i don't know like there's charisma there because he's definitely holding your attention in the in this you know movie but it doesn't feel like he's hugely invested in the character at this point i don't know like when he's fighting uh the guy in the elevator when he's in holland i think that's a really good fight scene i think he agreed yeah when he's sitting in that lunar buggy he could just be like raising his eyebrow at the screen, but he's he's got like a panicked look on his face and pretending to drive this little thing through the through the plains of Nevada. Fair play to him. I think he's like, hey, they're paying me. I will do a good job at this. And I, I think he was starting to wane towards the end of the previous films. Not many people can de- de- well deliver a line like, uh, sorry, I, I was taking my rat for a walk and I got lost. You know, <laughs> like, you know. I look, look I, 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 he has an undeniable charisma that is just sean connery but i kind of know what cam's saying with regards to him kind of phoning this in to a certain degree i think there's kind of it's nice to have his presence in this movie it just you can understand why maybe he was done with the character and wasn't eager to come back again you know like um it's like i feel maybe in between uh where where you fellows are right now and i wonder too to give some credit to Connery, if he just understood what movie he was in and that to have this kind of low key, kind of just be charming and just kind of make your way through this madness approach is what fits the movie best. Because the movie is not this sort of taut spy thriller like from Russia with Love or something. Well, it's just interesting how, you know, Scott was maybe thinking that they're trying to go for Electra Nachios or Maxwell Smart, but ultimately it feels more like that mall cop, Paul Blart. <laughs> how is paul blart getting on to spy hard can we why is this allowed can we, this is this i've is got not so right. many more to go <laughs> they're just gonna get more and more obscure if there's not a condor man reference in there i'm gonna be very disappointed yeah 
Oh, you're you're inspiring me. You best get writing. Well, I've got one more like that I haven't heard mention, and that is the John Barry score. Oh, interesting. Because I don't like this score. Really, I think he's I think he's on good form in this one, and I love Diamonds Are Forever as a song. I think it's one of the best Bond songs. Yeah. <laughs> not one of really? my favorites. Yeah, not one of really? my favorites. Someone help me out here, guys. Give me, give me some love to Diamonds Are Forever. It's not perfect, but there's some stuff here. You know, Kanye West agrees with you. The 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 theme song really didn't do it for me. There were some cues that I did dig. I I just wonder how much um, this one feels like the least among the least international bonds. You know, it's most of it takes place. You know, I I know like Goldfinger's heavily in the u.s but like this one takes place you know mostly like uh, california and, and nevada and there there was the u.s army assaulting a mexican oil rig which was okay but um i, I just wonder if they're trying to <laughs> go for a bit of a different vibe with the score versus kind of that more international flair with uh bond that we usually get where it's more of that kind of um european uh feel sometimes i, I will defend cam's dislike of one track on this score and and when Cam said at the beginning that, that it was nominated for a, an, an Oscar or an Emmy or something for the score, um, that kind of blew me away because the soundtrack... Oh, no, that was sound. It was nominated for sound, not for... Oh, okay. That makes a lot more sense because that there's a... When they're doing the chase with the lunar buggy, yeah, that's, that's bizarre. It's just like this tinkling kind of sound. I mean, I will say I do like the Winton Kid music cue. I think that's pretty effective. Mm-hmm. I just like Diamonds Are Forever, the Shirley Bassey song. I think that's just a terrific Bond song. I would take that over, I think, almost anything in most of what... Well, no, it's it's probably the, my second favorite of the Conneries. Okay. I like Thunderball, that song, a lot. So that's up there, Goldfinger. I, Goldfinger, I think it's just Shirley Bassey again for me. Yeah. Tyler, do you come down either way on the score or the song? Yeah, you said you didn't like the song very much. Yeah, the, the score, I, I think, is perfectly serviceable for me. And for the record, like, the best Bond songs are always going to be, you know, uh, Nobody Does It Better, uh, we've got uh, Live and Let Die, and I uh, that, that, that Jack White, Alicia Keys one. I, I play it nonstop. Nonstop. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like that last one was sarcastic. Mm, mm. <laughs> just, just maybe. I, I'm, oh, okay, says the B- Billie Eilish fan. That's right, that's right. <laughs> you watch, that song's going to win the Oscar this year. <laughs> well, I think before we move on to dislikes that we haven't touched on already, is there any other likes out there? I've thrown mine. Yeah, I mean, I think what you know you mentioned about the fight in the elevator sequence is very true. I think that's a fantastic action scene, probably the best in the movie. I also really like the breaking into Willard White's, um, you know, apartment where he's like dangling outside. There's some genuine vertigo going on there. Um, so... I think the movie is real hit or miss with the action. Like, I think the finale stuff's weak, and I think the car chases kind of wear out their welcome for me, but there are the odd set pieces, in many ways the smaller ones, that do stick with me. Do you trust uh, Q's grappling hooks? Uh, not necessarily the device itself, but the surface <laughs> that he's shooting them into to get into White's penthouse? I'm just like, I hope that works. I think that actually helps the sequence because, no, I don't trust them. <laughs> yeah. And that makes it that much more nail-biting for me to watch. <laughs> doesn't um, doesn't Skyfall also have a scene of Bond dangling off of a lift? Yes, it does, yeah. Oh, okay. Nice to know I remember that. Was that in, like, the China sequence? It's when he's going up to have the fight with the guy in front of, yeah, like, the neon screens. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, there's, like, a sniper up there. Yeah. 
We interrupt this program to bring you a special report. Agents, pardon the interruption, but we have some top secret intel. That's right. Independent podcasting is not cheap. Equipment, hosting, research. We don't have Townsend Agency resources. And also, we don't want to run ads on the show. No one wants to hear that shit, tucky mushrooms. And this is a big reason we created the Spy Hearts Patreon. So we're here asking for your help. Please consider joining the Patreon. You'll not only be gaining access to our exclusive lineup of reviews and film commentaries, but also helping support the show. We're currently saving to upgrade our sound equipment to bring your listening experience up to Q-Branch standards. With a wide range of flexible options and an ever-growing catalogue to dive into, become a true spy hard today and enter the Xander Zone at patreon.com slash spyhards. That's S-P-Y-H-A-R-D-S, or you can find a link in the show notes below. Now, Cam, on with the spy jinx. Okay, well, I, I think we're definitely drifting into dislike territory. It sounds like the diamonds are forever. So, Tyler, one you haven't mentioned, like something you don't like about this film. Uh, well, look, I, I would say... Um... Don't hold back, Tyler. Don't hold back. <laughs> like, well, no, no. I, uh, okay, He's like building up, folks. I, the thing is, I, 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 I covered a, a lot of it. You know, I, I'm, you know, like, I, okay. Here's something. I, I, it's a little bit tangential, but I think it was the Plenty of Tool character where when this movie aired on ABC back in the day, Cam. I don't know if you remember the story, but did they not put like a CGI bra on her when it aired on television, in, like the 1990s? Is that like ring a bell? Oh, I don't have any idea. It's entirely possible. Although they they did hmm. it for one of the Bond movies. And when I was watching it, like I know for a fact that they they did it because they said it was too suggestive to have like her bare back showing. And Hmm. um, I I, I just think that broadcasters should really just lay off like uh, inserting that sort of stuff into them, um, into the movies that they license there. Um, I I wish they kind of like, uh, I don't know. there wasn't as much tension as you'd normally get from a Bond film. Mm. It kind of felt throughout like things were going to work out in the end, which you kind of know what happens in Bond, but I wish there was more tension because he keeps getting knocked out and kidnapped and you kind of know that he'll be okay. And so I just just wish this one was just a a wee bit more taut than uh, we've been kind of programmed with, with the prior Connery films. There's a moment that underlines everything you're saying about the lack of tension, which is like when he's being escorted away by goons um, at the end of the movie, he just like stops to tie his shoe. Yeah, really. And like the two goons are just like standing there staring at him as he releases a balloon. It's like the lack of just complete tension in this is kind of emblematic of the entire finale, especially where it's just like kind of just ambling about and going, okay, well, you know, there's no real urgency to anything that's going on. It it definitely, I mean, it, it had already lost a lot of its momentum by that point. But a lot of Bond films can have that and then rise back up again in the finale. But the whole finale is just, it's just a snooze. Yeah. Even though you get the whole like helicopters attacking, but you have like some of the worst explosion effects I've ever seen <laughs> in the Bond film. It's like someone's just drawn an explosion with crayon over the film or something. It's It's horrifically bad. And then I mean, I'd rather have seen like a shootout in, in the mashed potato room from the, in the beginning of the film. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That, that, that had more tension. What was that mashed potato substance supposed to be? Like, I, I was confused. It's supposed to be mud. That's actually taken from the book. And I haven't mentioned the book at all, which I've actually read. The book is much more of just sort of a hard edged bond versus the mob. 
story. And at a certain point, he does go to a like mud spa. So they're kind of just borrowing that location from the book. Okay. Uh, is it like a sulfur? Is it a sulfur pit that Blofeld is the double is shoved into, or is it like something else? It's supposed to be just like therapeutic mud, I believe, to like help the skin graft or whatever. Or... So does he not know how to s- swim? <laughs> well, I mean, he's strapped to that bed, so maybe he just can't crawl back out. Yeah, I guess yeah. I don't know, but I think I've got one of our activities for Vegas next oh, time. Okay. Oh, yeah. <laughs> mud bath, mud bath. <laughs> Will it have edible cups? We'll find out. <laughs> Star Trek reference. Just to let everyone know, Tyler did mention the ABC added in underwear. I can confirm that did happen. Oh, they added in underwear to Plenty O'Toole in the scene where she's uh, getting thrown out the window. Well, I know what I'm getting you for your uh, Bachelor's Day gift, there, uh, Scott. <laughs> CG undies, e- editable underwear. <laughs> yes. Did they edit in a reason for why she wound up in the pool? No, 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 no one could write that, unfortunately. There's a deleted scene that explains it, sort of. Mm. But yes, the reasons that Plenty O'Toole shows up in Tiffany Case's pool is a, a real head-scratcher. And I remember as a kid being absolutely baffled by it. Now, I interrupted you, Tyler. Please go. Well, I mean... And leave. Cam- no, but please tell me what you want to say. Cam had just mentioned that Star Trek reference, you know, with the, the edible uh, cups there. But um, I, Star Trek has some spies there. You know, thinking about, like, uh, Colonel West, Lieutenant Valeris, and Ash Tyler's Vogue. He might just scare us. Oh, <laughs> wow! That was uh, we 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 are scraping the bottom of the barrel now. Oh, it, it gets worse. This is Don't my worry. My favorite spy level of of bad. <laughs> um, well, okay. So, Cam, what about you? Something you didn't like? I don't like how this movie completely scraps on Her Majesty's Secret Service. And I've heard people say, no, no, it is a sequel. It just you know doesn't acknowledge the events. And it's like, no, this movie is like actively retconning them because. I think it's a very intentional move that at the start, when you have Bond looking for Blofeld, it opens with him throwing someone through a wall in Japan because, you know, You Only Live Twice was set in Japan, and that's the last time that Connery encountered Blofeld. So it feels like it's continuing on from that story. Plus, you've got stuff like he meets up with Monty Penny, and she's like, Bring me a ring, James, which seems really insensitive to a man whose wife was just killed. <laughs> um, <laughs> just imagine Sean Connery starts crying in the car, like, why? Yeah. No, and, and, you, and you have, like, M barking at him, like, time to get back to some plain solid work, 007. It's like, <laughs> this man's wife was just horribly murdered in front of him. <laughs> How dare you take a mental health day, Bond? Get back yeah. to work. So it really does feel like it's just a sequel to You Only Live Twice, which I know on Her Majesty's was a bit of a disappointment for people uh, financially. Like, they didn't really like it at the time. It's one that definitely over uh, the years has become a favorite, but not so much then. But it just kind of bums me out because it's sort of that lingering, like, what if of coming off of, you know, um, On Her Majesty's. And everything that's built up in that movie is just deflated in this one, just completely gone. Well, it's such a powerful thing having Bond get married and fall in love. And for it to just so sort of go, ah, I don't really care about that, and just wipe the table clean. And as you say, they wanted to try and get rid of the stink of George Lazenby. Well, I wouldn't call it a stink, but you know what I mean. It just feels a shame to to lose all that character growth you got through the love and the loss that uh, Lazenby had. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it just felt like they were taking the franchise in interesting, like, 
avenues. Like they mm. wanted to expand emotionally what the character could be. They were looking to do essentially what Daniel Craig era Bond was doing in the late 60s. And then they kind of chickened out and went back to this. Well, I one person that we haven't really made mention of in this episode, which surprises me, is Jill St. John. Yeah. Now, she is your Bond girl of the film. We've spoken a lot about, well, we've spoken plenty about plenty, but not enough about Miss Tiffany Case. And this is coming down in a dislike for me because last week I was shown in the liquidator just what Jill St. John can do. And I feel like at the beginning of this film, you get a little bit of that. And as soon as she sleeps with Bond around about that time, she just becomes an underwear model. Yeah, I I do love the moment late in the movie. This is my favorite type of line. It's something that Tyler and I have encountered watching Star Trek episodes. But you have a scene where she meets up with Q in a casino and goes... Well, I guess I'm working for the good guys now. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> even the writers are just throwing up their hands being like, I don't know what this woman's motivations are. Well, uh, Tyler, what did you think of Tiffany Case? Well, you know, when it comes to women in spy movies, she just can't compare to Jennifer Garner's Sydney Bristow or that ScarJo portrayal of Black Widow. That's also true, yeah. <laughs> I find with... Tiffany Case is a character that in the book, like the Tiffany Case character is generally regarded as one of the best written female characters in Bond literature, which is kind of shocking when you watch the movie because that's very much not the case. And in the book, it's someone who's gone through a horrific assault in their past, a sexual assault, and has become this sort of mercenary figure that's a survivor in the criminal underworld. She's a very strong businesswoman who Bond genuinely bonds with because, pardon the pun, because of kind of their shared lifestyle and sees a potential future with her. Like, it's not this sort of bubbly, weird character here where I think like Jill St. John's really good up front where Tiffany is someone who's like fairly bright and kind of you see the way she's dusting for fingerprints, doing all that sort of stuff, runs this business. She has a great line where she says like, I don't dress for the hired help. You know, lines like that, I'm like, okay, I kind of like this tough-talking diamond smuggler. But then, when you get to her being like, ee, when when and Kid are going to attack, I'm like, on one hand, I don't like where this character has gone. I don't under, even understand who Tiffany Case is anymore. But I kind of give props to Jill St. John in that, like, moments like that, you give her a bad hand and she still sells it. Like, for some reason, that moment is genuinely funny. So, I give props to her as an actress who's able to very much change on the dime in terms of her expectations within the movie but the character of tiffany case is all over the place that also rhymes i'm glad i'm having that influence on you cam <laughs> i i'm not i'm not well it's interesting as well because you look at the when she's captured by blofeld she being tiffany and that by that point she's lost all agency she is as i said an underwear model unfortunately but you look at something like tracy in on the magic secret service she gets captured by blofeld as well and she is just quipping with him the whole time and like having this like tete-a-tete and it's quite fun to watch whereas i think uh, when tiffany shows up and bond shows up and she's like talking to you know blofeld darling and laying on his couch in underwear like it just they pay no mind to the female characters in this film. And that's a shame when they've proven in the past that they can do very good female characters. Going all the way back to Pussy Galore, Fiona Volpe, Domino, you name them. They've done some great stuff. This film is just completely devoid of any substantial female character. Well, it's like she's someone of shifting loyalties. 
which I think would be interesting to explore maybe in a modern Bond film, have a female lead who kind of changes sides and goes back and forth. And I think that's what they're going for with Tiffany, but they're also not really explaining her motivations or they're not treating her with any seriousness whatsoever, which doesn't help. Anything else, gents? Any other dislikes we haven't brought up yet? Yeah, look, if I was a henchman and there was an escape pod that my boss was saving for himself, I'd be screwed. I'd be jumping into that escape pod. <laughs> Plot hole. As a kid, I hated that whole Blofeld in the submarine sequence because um, to the best of my memory at a young age, that was the last time we saw classic Blofeld. And it was like, that's how they ended this character because I was convinced this being the last classic one I saw it would be finality to the Blofeld story. And I was like, you've got to be kidding me. And even to this day, I'm like, what are they doing? I don't even know what they're doing with this, especially when they didn't think that Connery would even come back. But then Blofeld was never like a physical person. So he was never going to have a punch up with Bond. No, but like, but he vanishes. He's in that submarine. And then what? Did he die? It, I, I just don't know what the answer is. I, I read at some point there was like an extra scene that was meant to be afterwards, like an assault mine or something. It was meant to have like a final showdown. Yeah, that was cut for budget reasons, yeah. Yeah, I, I don't know if that would have added to the story, but then I think by that point we're over two hours. It's probably running a bit long anyway. So, yeah, I, I, I agree. I think the whole, the Blofeld of always a disappointment, the final showing, the final showdown is a disappointment. One question I had, and... Uh, it's a dislike, but it's also more of a question. Throwing back to the crematorium, but slightly before where we visited, we have this whole exchange with the burning of bodies and Bond gets trapped by Winton Kid in a coffin. And we end up with potentially one of the biggest and silliest moments in Bond where he just magically gets out of trouble because they pull him out. And yeah. Isn't it just a complete letdown that they don't have, give him any like ingenious way of getting out of the coffin? Instead, he's just saved. Yeah, I thought that was pretty lame. Yeah, because it's like he's pulled out because they realize the diamonds are fake. But it's like, Wynn and Kid had him. Like, I think they came the closest to killing Bond of any villains, I think. They had him. Yeah, they had no reason to, to worry about it. He was inside being cooked. Yeah. So, like, that's notable, but I, I found that disappointing, even as a, as a young kid watching the movie. I was always like, really? Like, Bond didn't escape? They just kind of brought him out? So, uh, yeah, it's a weird choice. And I, I don't like when Witten Kid put him in, like, a pipe later on. That, that plan felt real <laughs> fuzzy in terms of how they were going to kill him there. Like, they're in a desert with a car. You could just, like, tie him up and leave him somewhere or something. But no, we're going to put you in a pipe with an yeah. electric thing? I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. I, 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 I still like this film, but there are so many questions I have about things they've done. Well, a character we haven't talked about. What did you guys think about Willard White? I don't tend to. <laughs> I feel like Tyler's madly writing a rap about Willard White at the very <laughs> moment. This track. <laughs> Dropping that beat now. Um, well, I think before we get to the question in hand, gents, do you have any final notes, Cam, anything for us? Um, I've got a few things I'll mention. Um, one is like the moment where, you know, Bond has had the fight with Peter Franks. Peter Franks is killed. He switches the cards. And Tiffany Case is like, you just killed James Bond. Boy, James Bond really is the world's worst secret agent, isn't he? He carries a Playboy Bunnies Club card with his name on it. Yeah, that's, uh, that's not what I found funny about that is that she goes to the extent of verifying 
Bond's fingerprints to make sure he is Peter Franks. But when she goes to see the body, she just checks the first card and that's it. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Uh, her security system is not as great as she thinks it is. No. Um, a couple other notes. The uh, gangster that says, I got a brother, is actor Sid Haig, who was a very prominent character actor. He's in like the um, various Pam Greer exploitation films of the era, but also he worked with Rob Zombie a lot. And he played Captain Spaulding, the clown uh, killer in the, um, you know, Devil's Rejects trilogy. So he's passed on the last few years. But uh, yeah, Sid Haig, a total icon of the time. And just lastly, there's some weird voices in this movie. Obviously, I'm not talking about Plenty O'Toole, who's dubbed. Like, that is what it is. I wish Lana Wood's voice was actually in the movie. But, like, <laughs> there is the weird, like, voice of the guy who is um, running the uh, the um, craps table when Bond is there, who's just mumbling through all the dialogue. It's absolute mumble. Yeah, you can't... It's indecipherable it's mumble. It's so weird. And, like, a movie nowadays would probably just ADR that, but I kind of love that they didn't. <laughs> it's got that... It does have that old Vegas vibe to it where you have these guys that are working on the, the tables for, you know, 12 hours a day, and they're just... It's like listening to auctioneers where they're like, one pound, one pound, two pound, two pound, and just riffing off words. He's just doing the same thing, but with no passion whatsoever. So I actually kind of buy it because it's... I imagine quite a soul-destroying environment to work in if you work in a casino 12 hours a day. Yeah, definitely. Um, and then also, the voice of the guy doing the countdown at the end. Nine minutes and counting. It sounds like Dracula. <laughs> he does, and or, or more specifically, The Count. Mm, yes, good call, Scott. No prize for you. No, no, I'm not getting a bunny off the top shelf, unfortunately, filled with diamonds. No. Much as I would like. Actually, one other one other note I'll mention is Shady Tree, the character you referenced earlier, who's this, like, hack comedian. His comedy act is fascinating. I'm baffled as to who would actually sit through it. But um, he is actually a very prominent character in the book. Like, the book is actually really interesting for fans of this movie to reach because it is such a different take on this diamond smuggling in Las Vegas plot. It's very just like pretty down and dirty. You've got, you know, Felix Leiter there. And actually, that reminds me, I should give my um, Felix Leiter Blandometer score because we have Felix Leiter played here by Norman Burton, who, um, not the most memorable Felix Leiter. <laughs> and so I'm going to give him... On the bland scale, on one to five, do I give him a one or is he a two? Five being not so bland. Um, hmm, I think... I mean, does he do anything to stick out whatsoever in this film? Apart from gawk at some, uh, some uh, trapeze artists in Circus Circus. I'm just trying to think if there's anyone more bland that then I'm, like, robbing them of the honors of a one. Um... I, don't I mean, know. he's no Jack Lord. No, he's no Jack Lord. I'll give him a two. Because he is kind of like a gruff character actor look. Like, he actually is kind of memorable visually. I'll give him that. But yeah, yeah. anyways, Felix plays a much larger part in the book. And um, again, read the book. It's pretty good. There's a few of the adaptations that are a lot closer. Casino Royale is a lot closer to the book. But um, Doctor No actually is very close to the book as well. But like Moonraker, for instance, has nothing to do with the book, basically. This one's kind of half and half. There's a lot of you know sequences okay. you recognize, but 
there's no satellite lasers. There's none of the goofiness. But you do have characters like Winton Kidd and Tiffany Case and various others. No Blofeld, though. Is Plenty O'Toole being thrown out of a window? There's no Plenty O'Toole to the best of my memory. And uh, yeah, no Blofeld. That's a shame. Well, the only question I had left over, because I think we've touched on sort of the things I liked and disliked about this film, is this is the last official, and I hate that title, Connery James Bond film. Much as You Only Live Twice was his last one, this is his last one again, and Never Say Never Again will be his last one for the third time. And now I personally think that if he's playing James Bond, it's an official film, but I know there's a lot of people that think there's just 25 Bond films. So let's ask the question if those are the parameters. Does this work as a swan song for Connery's Bond? Definitely not. It just has no finality. It, I guess, sort of works in the sense of finality for the actor. Like, you really get the sense Sean Connery is done. Like, the journey of the young hungry actor in Dr. No to this like comfortable kind of shuffling actor who's just kind of making funny and kind of smirking his way through Diamonds Are Forever. There's a complete journey there. But in terms of a character journey of the bond of Dr. No to here, no. And there's no sense at the end of like, yep, that is, you know, kind of James Bond going off into the sunset or anything. Yeah, he's not he's not going off on an all-time high. Pardon the usage of another Bond one there. But um I, I would tend to agree with you. I think it's a it's a dull note for Connery. I, I would uh, I would say Never Say Never Again is actually a better film than this, from my recollection. Although I'm not sure I will agree when I revisit it for the podcast. But yeah, I, I think this is the weakest of of his films, and so no, I do not think it's a fitting uh, final note to end on. Uh, what do you think about it, Tyler? I think one of the things you have to consider is it could have been like a boring send-off that no one even thinks about. Like, I don't think it's a graceful send-off, but the fact that we're still talking about like what an insane, like deranged almost kind of movie this is, that uh, it might be problematic. It's still entertaining trash, as I kept referring to it. So I, I wonder if this is kind of a, an interesting way to segue into the Roger Moore era. I'm not saying it's the best Connery movie ever, but it's at least memorable, which I like did did Dalton necessarily get a memorable send off? Did Brosnan like those I'll say he actually kind of did OK, considering kind of the history of the way most Bonds go out. And also Bonds didn't really used to get send offs until yes. Craig. So, yeah. yeah, no one's getting blown up in this film. No. Well, except for um, the very end. Yeah, the, the really bad explosions <laughs> with the helicopters, you're quite right. You're quite right. Well, I think we've arrived at our ultimate question. Diamonds are forever. Are we chucking it out the window like Plenty O'Toole, or are we taking it to bed in our fish tank? <laughs> that is the ultimate question. Tyler, you're our guest. You go first. This is your second time uh, you know, answering the knock list question. Diamonds are forever. Is it making the knock list? I guess I'm going to have to put it in uh, Bourne territory. This is not making the knock list, even though I'm saying like uh, the first Bourne movie totally deserves to be on the knock list. You know, we did a commentary on that one fairly recently. and I don't know. I can really pinpoint exactly why I don't think it does. But we've definitely had a lot of blowback about that movie more than just about anything else. Yeah. I don't think you'll be getting the same blowback <laughs> with regards to diamonds. <laughs> Blow fell back. <laughs> 
Uh, no, I, I, I don't think we will. But uh, okay, so that's a no for you, Tyler. I think that's a very justified no. I think you've uh, eloquently explained your position on the film. But Cam, how does it fare? Um, yeah, it's a no for me as well. I will note, though, I actually like this one more than You Only Live Twice. And I said no to that one as well. I was overruled on that movie. But Diamonds Are Forever, I feel, yeah, it's just not. This is nowhere near top tier Connery. And I, I like, as much as I am a Bond fan who can kind of find fun in just about any Bond movie, they don't all belong on the knock list. And that's the case with this one. Yeah, I, I'm going to struggle to uh, disagree with anything we've said today because, you know, I said some of it. But yeah, it's a no from me too. And it's a real shame for it to be a resounding no after having, you know, the last five Connery Bonds all make the list. You know, the last two kind of scraped on with two votes against to the one. But this one is a resounding no. Um, but I don't think it earns any discussion of maybe making the knock list. I think there's a reason why it's on a lot of Bond fans, bottom five, maybe even bottom three Bond films. I think if you were like, say, a 20-year-old Bond fan now or something, like a really you know younger Bond fan, I think this movie would be almost unwatchable. Yeah, I, and I, I can see the, the, the points you're maybe hinting towards that are unwatchable. I think that you, you can look at it through more of the it's of its time piece of work, and that's one way of viewing this. And I, and I tend to try and come from that perspective, but even then it's still, the plot is still a mess. It's really hard to follow. The pace is all over the place. The, the villain is not very good. The Bond girls aren't particularly good, memorable in a, a way, but they have no, they, they, it, it, it's no um, domino. If this was somebody's introduction to Bond, they wouldn't exactly be thrilled to continue on. Although maybe they would. My introduction was View to a Kill, which is anything but thrilling, and yet I was in love with it at the age of 11. So who knows what goes on in the mind of children? <laughs> I could uh, confidently say um, most people would uh, probably stay away from the Bond series if this was their <laughs> introduction. I, I feel very confident about that. I think you're probably right. <laughs> Yeah, it's uh, it's no Bombay Supreme, but uh, it sounds like it's not making the knock list. But Tyler, I want to thank you for joining us once again on the show. I'm glad we got you on to talk about Diamonds Are Forever. We have that Vegas connection. Hopefully in a few months time, the three of us will have a group hug, COVID approved, in Vegas together. I'll get to see all of your smiley faces in person and uh, we can go back to the crematorium and take more awkward photos. <laughs> well, I, thank you so much. You know, it just this entire thing kind of reminded me of plain and simple Taylor Garrick, but not to forget Flint, comma, Derek. Boom. That was actually pretty good. I'll, I'll, I'll give you that. But um, now we've mentioned it at the start, but of course, you and Cam host the Subspace Transmissions podcast, the podcast I've appeared on many times and always, you know, brought the energy down whenever I've turned up. But what have you guys got <laughs> going on at the moment? What have you got coming up? So we will be digging into the remaining episodes of Star Trek Discovery for Season 4, and some of them will be coinciding with the first couple episodes of Star Trek Picard Season 2. Um, mixed feelings on both those series, but at least we like picking them apart, dissecting them. If you enjoy this, like we don't want to drag you down um, this new Star Trek era, but Cam, I think we're hopeful about Season 2 of Picard after being rather underwhelmed in the first season yeah i think so it looks like the show is going to take a shift in a different direction so maybe that'll be bad but at least it feels kind of different so i think yeah we're going in 
hoping to embrace whatever this, you know, kind of uh, alternate take on a Picard story could be. We are all out on Discovery at this point, though. Yeah, it's done. It's done. Stick a fork in it. It's gone. Those first two seasons, we we, we were digging. um, And then I just don't know that the show just lost kind of a lot of momentum the last two seasons. What lost more momentum? Was it Discovery or Diamonds Are Forever? (laughs) Well, I feel like we feel towards Discovery the way the producers felt about George Lazenby in 1971. (laughs) (laughs) Got to change it. We got to change it. Yeah. Um, but, and so, I mean, I'm sure I'll be popping up again down the road on, on subspace, but I, I definitely recommend the show. It's the only Star Trek podcast I listen to, but that's mostly because I like to hear Cam all the time. Of course. Well, of we course. don't like being predictable, so don't count on popping up in the future. <laughs> <laughs> and you can find us at subspace transmissions, wherever you get your podcasts. So yeah, just check us out. And, and Tyler, what about you? Where can people find more from you? You can find me at Reporton on Twitter. That's R-E-P-O-R-T-O-N-N, as in uh, Natasha and Boris from uh, Rocky and Bullwinkle. Those are some super spies there. <laughs> did Did you save that one for right at the end to do the Reporton N? Of course. He's a professional, folks, you can tell. Tyler, I want to thank you for joining us again. Uh, it's been great. I've got even more rhymes to share in the bonus segment. Please leave. Please leave. <laughs> Well, there you go, folks. Diamonds Are Forever was three no's, and as such, it did not make the knock list, unfortunately. Uh, it, it is the last official Sean Connery film, and we'll be sad to see him go, but we have still got one final stop with Sean in Never Say Never Again, which is coming down the line on the show. But, Cam, what are we talking about next week? Yes, we are tackling 2001's Tony Scott thriller Spy Game, starring Brad Pitt and... Three Days of the Condor star, Robert Redford. Another connection to our guest this week, uh, little Three Days of the Condor there. This is one of the ones that's been mentioned online quite a lot to us. Um, I've not really heard much about it, but I know it had a lot of praise when it came out, so I'm genuinely excited to watch it for the first time. And we have a really great guest joining us next week as well, so check that out. And as such, your mission, should you choose to accept it, is to watch Spy Game and join us next week. As I mentioned, Diamonds Are Forever did not make the knock list, but if you want to find out the films that did, head on over to letterbox.com slash spyhards. You can find out all of the, the approved films and then the ones that didn't quite make it, and then, of course, our special disavowed list for the worst films ever and do not forget to follow us discreetly on social media at spyhards that's s-p-y-h-a-r-d-s on facebook twitter and instagram but until next week listeners this endeth the lesson for today gentlemen <laughs>